audio teaching is provided by segula.net. You are listening to our study series on Luke Acts. Welcome to session 15. We're going to continue in the early chapters of the book of Acts. So the last session we started out in chapter one and chapter two of Acts, and we were looking at the narrative shape of Acts and how there are these two geographical movements that you see throughout the book. So on the one hand, we see a gradual expansion of the good news, right? Jerusalem, Judea, Samaria, and to the ends of the earth, right? So the, the good news is, is moving outward. On the other hand, we see a continual circling back to Jerusalem. Each phase of expansion is accompanied by repeated trips back to the center. Some, several scholars have seen this pattern as, as reflecting uh, what we read in Isaiah chapter 2. Isaiah chapter 2, verses 2 to 3. This is probably a passage most of us are familiar with. It shall come to pass in the latter days that the mountain of the house of the Lord shall be established as the highest of the mountains and shall be lifted up above the hills and all the nations shall flow to it. And many people shall come and say, come, let us go up to the mountain of the Lord, to the house of the God of Jacob, that he may teach us his ways and that we may walk in his paths. For out of Zion shall go forth the Torah and the word of the Lord from Jerusalem." And, and this is really the, the pattern we see in the book of Acts. We see the word of the Lord going forth from Zion. And a, a number of interpreters have pointed to these verses in Isaiah as paradigmatic for, this, uh, for, the, for Luke, for the book of, uh, of Acts. So we don't uh, see Luke uh, quoting that verse explicitly, but it seems to be under the surface in a lot of, uh, well, in the overall structure of the narrative. Uh, of course, um, most a lot of these interpreters tend to overlook the fact that that verse talks about Torah going forth from Zion. But uh, yeah, so I think there's there's something to be said about that too, uh, which will be significant when we get to Acts chapter 15. Uh, we'll get there eventually. <laughs> so today I want to follow up with a closer look at Peter's sermon in Acts chapter 2. Uh, well, starting in Acts chapter 2, and then we're going to look at some of Peter's other sermons in chapter 3 and in chapter 4. Uh, and so we're going to uh, explore some of these themes in that. But before we do that, I want to, us to go back to Acts chapter 1 verse 6 just for a moment here so uh in this verse uh this is where the disciples when they had come together they asked yeshua lord will you at this time restore the kingdom to israel uh, we talked a bit about this verse last session and this the disciples question here is related to eschatology Right, the the last things. What is God's plan for the end times? What's how is how is the final redemption going to play out? What uh, it, you know, the, what the disciples are asking is: Is 
the final restoration of Israel going to take place now? And as we saw last time, a lot of scholars see the disciples' question here as misguided, right? What You know, these silly disciples, why are they still asking about the restoration of Israel? Haven't they figured out that Jesus came to start a new religion or something like that, right? Um, that's a bit of a caricature, but uh, yeah, uh, the point, of course, is that as we saw in throughout the gospel of luke this is a this is the main thing this is the theme right the, uh, the early chapters the infancy narratives in luke 1 and 2 it's all about the restoration of israel and so the fact that the disciples are asking this question makes sense because this is what should be on their mind it sh it's what should be on our minds as readers when we get to this point uh this is the question we're wondering too and the disciples uh, you know luke is a is a skillful writer. He has the disciples ask it for us. Now, a lot of scholars are, are still going to argue that Yeshua's, Yeshua's answer to the disciples' questions is either dismissive, right? Like, uh, oh, don't worry about that. I've got a different plan for you guys. Here, here it is. Or, or some even take it as a rebuke. That Yeshua is rebuking his disciples for, for, having such a narrow-minded, ethnocentric, nationalistic aspiration, right? You're, you're still just concerned about this national restoration when God wants to restore the whole world. Well, um, obviously, there is a theme of God restoring the whole world in Acts that'll come out very prominently as we continue, but that's not at the expense of restoring Israel, is what I'm arguing here. And as we talked about in the last session, this verse demonstrates that the final restoration of Israel is still on the radar, right? This is still a major theme for Luke. So despite all that, um, scholars like uh, James Dunn, Jimmy Dunn, are going to argue that this eschatological theme fades away after this point, right? So Dunn suggests that Luke's, Luke intends his readers to perceive a fading of any sense of eschatological intensity and urgency over the course of the book of Acts. That's a quote from his book on the book of Acts. <laughs> so it, it takes a while, he argues, but finally the disciples get it that we're in a new age now, the age of the church uh, he doesn't say it exactly that way, but but that's kind of the idea, right? Um, the disciples still have this, this sense that the end times are now in chapter one, but by the time you get to the end of the book, you realize, oh, it's not it's not that urgent anymore. This this urgency has faded away. But is this really true? And uh, so this is the question. Does, does the eschatological urgency of Luke Acts fade over the course of Luke's narrative? Uh, this is the question we'll have to keep in mind throughout the study as we're going through the book of Acts, because we won't be able to answer it fully till we get to the end, right? But um, it's something I want us to focus on as we're going through Peter's sermons. Uh, is there a, a, even a hint of answering this question, right? And we'll come back and recap on some of this at the end of this session. Uh, but this is the question we can use to, to frame what we're talking about. 
Okay, we're going to take a look at Peter's sermon. And in just a moment, I'm going to ask for a volunteer to read these verses. It's a bit of a, a lengthy section, uh, verses 14 to 41. Uh, but uh, before we do that, we need to remember that the speeches and acts are important because Luke embeds his theology in the words of his protagonists. Luke is a very clever writer. He uses the characters in his story to get his own message across, right? So when we read Peter's sermons, we're not just reading what Peter thought and said, we're reading, we're reading what Luke wants his readers to grasp. So let's let's look for let's look for some of these important themes in this sermon. Um, yeah, could I get a volunteer to to read this section? We'll read Acts chapter two, verses fourteen to forty-one. I can start reading if somebody else would like to join in after a bit. Sure, that'd be great. But Peter standing up with the eleven, raised his voice and said to them, Men of Judea and all who dwell in Jerusalem, let this be known to you and heed my words. For these are not drunk, as you suppose, since it is only the third hour of the day. But this is what was spoken by the prophet Joel. And it shall come to pass in the last days, says the Lord, and I will pour out my spirit on all flesh. Your sons and your daughters shall prophesy. Your young men shall see visions. Your old men shall dream dreams. And on my men servants and on my maid servants, I will pour out my spirit in those days and they shall prophesy. I will show wonders in heaven above and signs in the earth beneath, blood and fire and vapor of smoke. The sun shall be turned into darkness and the moon into blood before the coming of the great and awesome day of the Lord. And it shall come to pass that whoever calls on the name of the Lord shall be saved. Men of Israel, hear these words. Yeshua of Nazareth, a man attested by God to you by miracles, wonders, and signs which God did through him in your midst, as you yourselves also know, him being delivered by the determined purpose and foreknowledge of God, and have taken by lawless hands, have crucified and put to death, whom God raised up, having loosed the pains of death, because it was not possible that he should be held by it. For David says concerning him, I foresaw the Lord always before my face, for he is at my right hand, that I may not be shaken. Therefore, my heart rejoiced, and my tongue was glad. Moreover, my flesh also will rest in hope, for you will not leave my soul in Hades, nor will you allow your Holy One to see corruption. You have made known to me the ways of life, you will make me full of joy in your presence. Men and brethren, let me speak freely to you of the patriarch David, that he is both dead and buried, and his tomb is with us to this day. Therefore, being a prophet and knowing that God had sworn with an oath to him that of the first 
the fruit of his body, according to the flesh, he would raise up the Christ to sit on his throne. He, foreseeing this, spoke concerning the resurrection of the Christ, that his soul was not left in Hades, nor did his flesh, flesh see corruption. This, this Jesus God raised up again, to which we are all witnesses, Therefore, having be exa been exalted to the right hand of God and having received from the Father the promise of the Holy Spirit, he has poured forth this which you both see and hear. For it was not David who ascended into heaven, for, for it was not David who ascended into heaven, but he himself says, The Lord said to my Lord, Sit at my right hand until I make my en thine enemies a footstool for thy feet. Therefore, let all the house of Israel know for certain that God has made him both, both Lord and Christ, this Jesus whom you crucified. Now, when they heard this, they were pierced to the heart and said to Peter and the rest of the apostles, Brethren, what shall we do? And Peter said to them, Repent and let each of you be baptized in the name of Jesus Christ for the forgiveness of your sins, and you shall receive the gift of the Holy Spirit. For the promise is for you and your children and for all who are far off, as many as the Lord our God shall call to himself. And with many other words, he solemnly testified and kept on exhorting them, saying, Be saved from the perver this perverse generation. So then those who had received his word were baptized, and they were added that day about 3,000 souls, and they were continually devoting themselves to the apostles, teaching them to fellowship and to the breaking of bread and to prayer. And that's everyone. Um, yeah, okay. no, that's great. We can, we can stop there for now. Um, yeah. Thank you both for, for reading. That was uh, a lot of verses. Um, yeah. Let's just, let's try and uh, take apart Peter's sermon here. I know it's, it's hard to keep, all of what he says in mind at the same time. Uh, so just to kind of break it up into different sections, we have, uh, first of all, in, uh, let's see, verses, well, the first couple verses there up to verse 16, uh, he starts by explaining the manifestation of the Holy Spirit. So uh, all, you know, all these people hear the disciples speaking in, in all these different languages and and but there there were some who were mocking and saying oh they're just filled with wine and so so peter begins he his sermon uh uses the situation as a springboard for uh, for a sermon right and so he begins with uh just explaining this manifestation they're not drunk but this is what it is and then he points to a quotation from the prophet Joel, Joel chapter two in English Bibles, it's from chapter two in, in Hebrew and uh, Hebrew Bibles, it's from chapter three. So, so then we have this, this lengthy quotation from Joel two, the promise of the outpouring of the Holy Spirit. Uh, after that, Peter begins to describe Yeshua's life, his death and his resurrection. Right, so we have that in verses 22 to 25, describing Yeshua's life, death, and resurrection. And then uh, Peter gives another 
citation from the Tanakh. He quotes Psalm 16. So he has that quotation. And, and this, this quotation, Peter's quoting because this is a promise of, he sees this, this is a promise of the resurrection of Messiah. Right? Um, then after that, he explains how this promise of resurrection points to the restoration of the Davidic monarchy. Um, and that's in verses 29 to 33-ish. Uh, and then finally, he follows it up with another quote, Psalm 110, verse 1. And, and this demonstrates that Yeshua is the true Davidic king, the Messiah. So a couple points from all this. I'll, I'll leave this, this outline up for a little bit as we talk about some of these things. Um, note the Davidic emphasis. Uh, Peter's point is to prove that Yeshua is the promised heir to David's throne. We've seen this theme before, right? This is what Gabriel, Gabriel tells Mary way back in Luke chapter 1. He will sit on the throne of his father David. So in other words, I'm going to say the theme here is still has something to do with Israel's restoration, right? That's not been taken off the table. So we have, first of all, Peter begins explaining the manifestation of the Holy Spirit, and then he quotes the prophet Joel. Let's take a quick look at that passage um, here. And it shall come to pass, afterward I will pour out my spirit on all flesh. There's a bit of a difference here between the way Peter quotes it and the way it is in Joel chapter 2. Uh, take a look at this. When Peter quotes it, it says, In the last days it shall be, God declares, that I will pour out my spirit on all flesh. So, here it has, um, after I will pour out my spirit on all flesh. Um, it shall be after these things I will pour out. Uh, it's even more pronounced if you compare uh, the Greek with the Greek. So this is the, the Septuagint, the Greek translation of the Hebrew scriptures. Um, in Greek, it's, and it will be after these things that I will pour out my spirit. And it will be in the last days, says the, says the God, I will pour out my spirit. So, so the rest is quite similar, but, but this opening line has been changed. And we're going to see, I, I, I want to say that this is, this is intentional. This isn't a mistake. Luke isn't like, uh, mis misquoting here. This is uh, an intentional allusion to multiple passages that's going on. What we're going to find is the missing phrase from this passage, where we're supposed to have this phrase, after, after these things, that's going to show up in a quotation for in chapter 15. When we get to Acts 15, we're going to find the missing phrase from Joel 2 shows up. And this phrase that Luke adds in here is taken from the quotation that he quotes from Amos in, in Acts 15. I'll, I'll, I'll leave that kind of on the back burner for now. And when we get to Acts 15, uh, hopefully I'll remember to, <laughs> to look at that again in more detail. But I think it's kind of cool what Luke is doing here. He, what he's doing is he's tying together this passage, which represents um, the 
proof text, if we want to say that, for the outpouring of the Spirit on the Jewish followers of Yeshua. And then in Acts 15, James quotes Amos as a proof text for the outpouring of the Spirit on Gentile followers of Yeshua. And he ties these two passages together by swapping the initial line from these two passages. Anyway, that's I, I think that's cool, but well, we will try to come back to that when we get to Acts 15. Okay, so so we've got this uh, this proof text, Joel 2. This is the promised Holy Spirit. Uh, but of course, Joel 2 uh, says quite a few other things other than just I'm going to pour out my spirit. There's, there's um, you know, dreams and visions, of course. Uh, but then it goes on to talk about stuff that seemingly doesn't have anything directly to do with Acts chapter 2. Uh, and and what was happening in those days, right? I will show wonders in the heavens, signs on the earth below, blood and fire and vapor of smoke. All this stuff. So, so I mean, this sounds like end of the world kind of stuff, right? This sounds like the sort of thing that would happen is, you know, this is eschatological. <laughs> so it's it's for the end times, right? Uh, so so what's what's all this? Well, first of all. I think this is an indication that Peter and, and Luke are not suggesting that what took place in Acts chapter 2 is the ultimate fulfillment of Joel 2. There is more to come, right? But this is this is the beginning. In, in other words, for, for Peter, Peter sees what is happening in his day as a sign of the end times. He quotes a passage about the end times that is, is quite blatantly about the end times to demonstrate that the outpouring of God's spirit is a sign of the end. This is a sign that the final restoration of Israel is at hand. And then um, this last, the last verse that he gets to is, is, is significant. Uh, it shall come to pass everyone who calls on the name of the Lord shall be saved. So, uh, if we jump down to back to Joel, the last the last verse of Joel 2 in English Bibles, it shall come to pass everyone who calls on the name of the Lord shall be saved. But then it goes on in Joel, for in Mount Zion and in Jerusalem, there shall be those who escape. There shall be uh, survivors, as the Lord has said, and among the survivors shall be those whom the Lord calls. Here we have a reference to the Lord, uh, not just people calling on the name of the Lord, but the Lord having called certain people. It's an interesting uh, interplay going on there. When we get to the end of Peter's sermon, he's going to quote this last part of Joel. He's going to recap. Well, let's let's see how that plays out. All right. So this this proof text. This is the end times taking place, right? This is this is incredible stuff going on. Then Peter dives into describing Yeshua's life, his death, and his resurrection. And, and he emphasizes that this happened according to the, the definite plan and foreknowledge of God, right? Um this wasn't like something that took God by surprise. This was this was all planned and advanced, and and he demonstrates that by quoting proof texts again, right? Uh, 
God raised him up because it was not possible for him to be held by it. And then he quotes a Psalm of David, Psalm 16. Uh, and this is where uh, the, the key part here is, you will not abandon my soul to Hades. In Greek, it's ave. Uh, it's, it's where, uh, it's the Greek word used to translate Sheol, the Hebrew word Sheol, right? Which means the grave, the um, personification of the grave. So you will not let your Holy One see corruption. For you have made known to me the paths of life you will make me full of gladness with your presence. Um, let's jump to these verses. This is uh, Psalm 16. I've set the Lord always before me. Get rid of this. Give us more room. Because he is at my right hand, um, you make known to me the path of life. In your presence is fullness of joy at your right hand are pleasures forevermore. So Luke leaves off this last phrase, but uh, what's significant is it is twice within these verses we have a reference to a right hand, right? Um, the Lord is at my right hand, at your right hand, at the Lord's right hand are pleasures forevermore. Um, that's going to tie us into the last proof text that Peter brings up, which is a reference to the Lord. My Lord said to my Lord, sit at my right hand until I make your enemies a footstool of your feet. So this right hand is a theme that ties these verses together. So, of course, Peter has to face the apparent uh, contradiction here that this, David spoke this psalm, right? So how could David say that you will not abandon my soul to the grave or let your Holy One see corruption? Now, Obviously, we could read that psalm on two levels, right? On one level, all that David is saying is, you delivered me from death. He, uh, of course, David later died, and uh, it wasn't, um, you know, it was a temporary deliverance from death because he later succumbed. But Peter wants to t read this on another level that I mean, if you take it hyper-literally, this is, this is a contradiction because since David died, those verses are not literally true. And, and he emphasizes that, he, you know, I can tell you confidently, I assure you, David has both died and was buried and his tomb is still there. But David spoke prophetically uh, and knowing that God had sworn with an oath to him that he would set one of his descendants on the throne. Okay, where did God swear that oath? Well, there's a couple places. So God's oath to David, we find that in 2 Samuel chapter 7, of course. Psalm 132, 11, and Psalm 89, 3 to 4. Let's look quickly at these. So in 2 Samuel 7, when your days are fulfilled and you lie down with your fathers, I will raise up your offspring after you who shall come from your body and I will establish his kingdom. He shall build a house for my name and I will establish the throne of his kingdom forever. Doesn't that sound a lot like what the angel Gabriel told Mary? He will sit on the throne of his father David and of his kingdom there will be no end, right? This will be uh, a forever kingdom. In Psalm 132, the Lord swore to David a sure oath 
from which he will not turn back. One of the sons of your body I will set on your throne. So there's this, this promise that there will be a descendant of David on David's throne. The, a, a promise for the perpetuity of the Davidic dynasty, right? Then how about Psalm 89? Psalm 89, verse 3, you have said, I have made a covenant with my chosen one. I have sworn to David, my servant. I will establish your offspring forever and build your throne for all generations. Uh, if you remember, we looked at Psalm 89 back, back in session nine. Uh, this is the psalm that stands at the darkest point in the entire book of Psalms, right? This is the psalm that deals precisely with the theological crisis of the fall of David's dynasty. How can God be faithful to his promise if the Davidic throne is destroyed and stands unoccupied? The psalmist never resolves that issue. But the answer, I think, is clear. In order for God to be true to his word, he will one day restore the Davidic monarchy and set a true descendant of David upon his throne. And this is exactly how Peter reads it, right? For Peter, Yeshua is precisely the solution to this theological crisis, right? Knowing that God had sworn with an oath to David that he would set one of his descendants on his throne, right? So David sees this promise as a promise of the Messiah. Messiah is the answer. So uh, David foresaw and spoke about the resurrection of the Messiah. This, whole, this passage is all about Yeshua's resurrection uh, because he is the true son of David. He's the true Davidic king. He is the restoration of the Davidic monarchy that was promised long ago. Uh, this Yeshua God raised up of that, we are all witnesses. And then Peter gives this curious phrase here, uh, being exalted at the right hand of God. In, in uh, the, the next verse, Peter quotes from Psalm 110, the Lord said to my Lord, sit at my right hand until I make your enemies your footstool. By the way, this is the most commonly quoted verse from the Tanakh that we find in the New Testament. So uh, the, the apostles quoted this verse more often than any other verse <laughs> from the Tanakh and, uh, and applied it to Yeshua, right? This, this is talking about Yeshua. In the original context of Psalm 110, this is, it's um, talking about Davidic kingship, right? It's a little unclear, like exactly what king is it talking about? And, and the apostles exploit that ambiguity and 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 demonstrate that this is uh this is clearly about messiah because who else could this be about right how could david refer to him as lord uh well it must be it must be the messiah right yeshua talks about that a bit as well um but the point is what what's 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 messiah doing doing up there beside god's throne <laughs> Or, or even on God's throne. Uh, this, this is, this is also the ambiguity. Is, is this character, um, this Messiah character, is he sitting beside the throne, or is he sitting on God's throne, uh, at, at the right hand? That's where, uh, when 
Peter uses this phrase, exalted at the right hand of God. He's combining two significant verses uh, that the apostles use to describe Yeshua. First, of course, is Psalm 110, verse 1, which Peter quotes in just a moment. The other is Isaiah 52, 13. This is the beginning, the opening verse of the longest of the, ser the servant songs in Isaiah, and the one that a lot of us are familiar with uh, when uh, this goes into Psalm 53, right? It continues, but it begins, Behold, my servant shall act wisely. He shall be high. He shall be lifted up and exalted. Uh, I think we talked about this once before, but the Hebrew is very emphatic. So he's going to be high, yarum, uh, venisa, lifted up, vegava, and and exalted, high. It's an, an, these are all near synonyms. Maod, very. So he uses three, you know, three near synonyms that all describe altitude, height, right, and then intensifies it all with the word very. The only other person in the book of Isaiah to be described as high and lifted up is God himself. So there's th this, this servant here is not just a, a, a servant, right? This is a divine servant that Isaiah is describing here. And so when Peter combines these two verses, exalted at the right hand of God, he's speaking both of Yeshua's divine status and his messianic status, right? He is, he is the divine Messiah who's raised up to, to the throne of God. And he's the Davidic king, right? But what's he doing up there? Why, why is he up in heaven? <laughs> and and is, is that where he stays? I, I think this is how a lot of, uh, a lot of Christian interpreters, uh, at least historically, have been prone to interpret these things that uh, Yeshua has been exalted up to the throne, uh, to the right hand of the father. And, and, and that's where he stays. That's, that's it. He, you know, he's going to stay there. Well, this verse says, until I make your enemies your footstool. That doesn't mean that Yeshua will cease to be exalted once his enemies are a footstool, but there, there's a, there's a purpose here to this, right? There's a, uh, there's a sense that this is not the end. The, the, the intention, the purpose is the destruction of Israel's enemies. And again, this ties in with the theme of the restoration of Israel, right? And Peter makes that clear. Let the house of Israel therefore know for certain God has made him both Kyrios and Christos. He's made him both um, Adon and Mashiach, the anointed one and and the Lord, this Yeshua whom you crucified. Okay, and then, so, you know, Peter says, repent and be immersed, every one of you, in the name of Yeshua, Messiah, for the forgiveness of your sins. What is that? Who does that sound like? Uh, who, who has already done that in Luke Acts? A similar, similar sort of message. John the Baptist, right? John the Immerser. He was going around preaching a, an immersion of repentance for the forgiveness of sins. So th this is like this is like John 2.0 right here. Uh, repent and be immersed, uh, and you and you will receive the gift of the Holy Spirit. This this goes 
a step beyond John. <laughs> this is why we're not just at John 1.0. This is this is a, a new version because what did John say? I baptize with water, but one will come who baptizes in the Holy Spirit. So this combines both water and spirit uh, immersion, right? This promise is for you, for your children, for all who are far off. Uh, this is speaking of th those children of Israel who have been scattered to the ends of the earth, who are far off, right? In Deuteronomy, God promises, uh, well, God predicts that Israel will fall, uh, fall away from him and be sent into exile far off. Far off is that place where Israel goes for having forsaken the covenant, but it is from there that they are drawn back and restored and, be, and come back to the land. So those who are far off represent those who are in exile. And then um, everyone whom the Lord our God calls to himself. There we get the tail end of Joel chapter 2. Peter rounds, rounds off this whole sermon. Uh, and, I mean, it's very, very skillfully done the way it's all tied in together like that. And with many other words, he bore witness and continued to exhort them saying, save yourselves from this crooked generation. Doesn't that sound kind of like John the Baptist too, right? Just like John the Baptist, there's this sense that judgment hangs over Israel and Peter's calling the people to repent in order to avert, uh, to avoid that judgment. At, at this point, I believe the fate of the generation as a whole is sealed, right? We see that with what Yeshua, when Yeshua is weeping when he comes to Jerusalem, right? He he sees that this the fate is sealed. The destruction of Jerusalem is coming. But God here is calling a remnant whom he will save out of it. Right? Okay. So that's Peter's sermon in a nutshell. <laughs> so then we have the these four things that they devoted themselves to. They devoted themselves to the apostles' teaching, the fellowship, the breaking of bread, and the prayers. Um, we'll talk more about this hopefully in another section, uh, another session. But uh, we see the apostles continuing to participate in the times of prayer. In fact, uh, chapter three. Verse one, that's what it starts with, that Peter and John were going up to the temple at the hour of prayer. So uh, the prayers that they're participating in is, is not just about uh, having, you know, uh, praying a lot, but it's also about um, being immersed in, in the cycle of prayer that is based on the Torah. Okay, yeah, I'm going to jump ahead here because I want to get into some of Peter's other sermons. Let's talk about Peter's second sermon. This one's a little bit shorter, uh, but it's still a significant section. And again, I'm going to ask for a volunteer. Would someone be willing to read? We're going to look at uh, chapter 3, verses 11 to 26. So from verse 11 to the end of the chapter. So just to, to frame this, um, you, when Peter and John go up to the temple at the hour of prayer, there's the man, lame man, 
at the temple gate called Beautiful. I always wondered, was it the gate or the man who was called Beautiful? But I found out that it's actually the gate. Um, and, and anyway, he gets healed and there's uh, uh, causes a lot of amazement and it uh, leads to Peter delivering this sermon in the temple. So anyone uh, have that passage and is willing to read that? While he clung to Peter and John, all the people, utterly astounded, ran together to them in the portico called Solomon's. And when Peter saw it, he addressed the people, Men of Israel, why do you wonder at this? Or why do you stare at us? as though by our own power or piety we have made him walk. The God of Abraham, the God of Isaac, and the God of Jacob, the God of our fathers, glorified his servant Yeshua, whom you delivered over and denied in the presence of Pilate when he had decided to release him. But you denied the holy and righteous one and asked for a murderer to be granted to you, and you killed the author of life whom God raised from the dead. To this we are witnesses, and his name, by faith in his name, has made this man strong, whom you see and know. And the faith that is through Yeshua has given the man this perfect health in the presence of you all. And now, brothers, I know that you acted in ignorance, as also did your rulers. But what God foretold by the mouth of all the prophets that his Christ would suffer, he thus fulfilled. Repent, therefore, and turn back, that your sins may be blotted out, that times of refreshing may come from the presence of the Lord, and that he may send the Christ appointed for you, Yeshua, whom heaven must receive until the time for restoring all the things about which God spoke by the mouth of his holy prophets long ago. Moses said, the Lord God will raise up for you a prophet like me from your brothers. You shall listen to him in whatever he tells you. And it shall be that every soul who does not listen to that prophet shall be destroyed from the people. And all the prophets who have spoken from Samuel and those who came after him also proclaimed these days. You are the sons of the prophets and of the covenant that God made with your fathers saying to Abraham, and in your offspring shall all the families of the earth be blessed. God, having raised up his servant, sent him to you first to bless you by turning every one of you from your wickedness. Great, thank you. Okay, so again, let's uh, try and get a handle on the shape of this sermon. Um, so once again, it begins by taking uh, the astonishment of the crowd at a certain phenomenon and using that as a springboard for a message. So he starts out by explaining this healing that has just taken place. He says, this, it wasn't our power that did this, right? And then he describes Yeshua's life, death, and resurrection once again. And the point in that is that Yeshua is the source of healing. It's, it's Yeshua's power that did that, as he explains um, in uh, uh, going up to verse 16. So then starting in verse uh, 17 and going on, 
he talks about how Yeshua's suffering was foretold by the prophets. And this leads to a call to repentance. And finally, or almost finally, <laughs> he quotes from Deuteronomy 18 to underscore the importance of listening to Yeshua, that God will raise up a prophet like Moses, you shall listen to him. And then he ends with this reference to the Abrahamic promise and explains that this promise is fulfilled through Israel's repentance. Let's, we'll uh, circle back to that in just a moment. Uh, I, there's, uh, there's a couple things to, um, to look at in this that I think are kind of cool. In verse 13, Peter says, the God of Abraham, the God of Isaac, and the God of Jacob, the God of our fathers. Um, given that this takes place around the time of prayer, uh, does that remind you of anything? It's, uh, <laughs> it's almost, almost verbatim the opening line of the Amidah prayer, right? The, the 18 benedictions, Shemone Yisrei. Uh, it begins, uh, you know, God of our fathers, God of Abraham, God of Isaac, and God of Jacob, the great, mighty, and awesome God. It goes on. Uh, so, so that's that's interesting. I, you know, we we're not a hundred percent sure when the Amidah, uh, how 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 far back it goes, when uh, when we can date it to. Did it exist in the first century? Uh, it probably did in some form, but we're not exactly sure if it was the same or if it's changed since then. Uh, but this could be uh, an early attestation to at least that part of it, right? That um, Peter here is alluding to part of the Amidah prayer. Okay. Um, then he goes on. Let's let's jump down to verse 19. So once again, just like in chapter 2, uh, in Acts 2, here in Acts 3, again, Peter gives a call to repentance. Repent, turn back, that your sins may be blotted out. And, and, and this is what's kind of cool, that times of refreshing may come from the presence of the Lord and that he may send the Messiah appointed for you, Yeshua, whom heaven must receive until the time for restoring all things uh, that God spoke through the prophets. So, so here we have um, what was, you know, back in Peter's first sermon, he describes how Yeshua ascended to the right hand of the father and he's the true Davidic king. You, you might get the impression from Peter's first sermon that that's where Yeshua is going to stay. He's going to stay at the right hand of the father in heaven. And that's where he's going to rule as the Davidic king. It's now, I mean, this, this lends itself to the idea that it's now a heavenly kingdom. It's not an earthly kingdom anymore. Uh, the Davidic dynasty is now a it's, it's just a heavenly kingdom that takes place in heaven because Yeshua is in heaven. Here, Peter makes it very clear that's not what he's talking about, right? Um, he's, he's saying that if you repent, if Israel repents, Yeshua will come back. He's going to send the Messiah. I mean, you, 
we might be thinking, didn't he already send the Messiah? It's, that's Yeshua. But obviously, Peter's looking forward to his second coming. Like the angels told the disciples, he will come in the same way that you saw him go. This is the Messiah appointed for you. It's Yeshua. And he's coming again. And he's been, heaven has received him until the time for restoring all things. So there is still a future time of restoration. Uh, what are these all things that he's talking about? Uh, you know, we're maybe used to hearing phrases like that and assuming that it's it's just talking about the universal restoration of humanity. Um, I want to suggest that this is restoring all the things which God spoke by the mouth of his holy prophets. What does that include? The rebuilding of Jerusalem, the restoration of Israel, the regathering of the exiles of Israel, all these national things <laughs> that God promised through the prophets. Um, this restoration will encompass Gentiles as well, as Luke will make clear throughout, you know, as we get later in the book of Acts, but it is that is not replace the restoration that God's going to do with Israel. So there's still this promised restoration of the kingdom to Israel that Peter is, is very much looking forward to here. Okay. Uh, then we have this quotation from Deuteronomy 18. Here we are in Acts 3, 22. Moses said, the Lord God will raise up for you a prophet like me from your brothers. You shall listen to him in whatever he tells you. Let's take a look at that. So in Deuteronomy 18, 15, the Lord your God will raise up for you a prophet like me from among your brothers. It is to him you shall listen. And then in verse 19, whoever will not listen to my words that he shall speak in my name, I will require it of him. So there's this, uh, this commandment that Moses gives to listen to the coming prophet like Moses. And this is a theme that Luke has already alluded to. If we go back to the story of uh, the transfiguration. Uh, let's, let's just take mm -hmm. a quick look at that. Okay. So Luke chapter nine, uh, starting Luke chapter nine, starting in verse 28. Let's jump there. Uh, so this is the story where Yeshua takes Peter and John and James, and they go up this mountain to pray. And as he's praying, um, he's, he's transformed, right? His clothing is dazzling white. Uh, and then there's these two people that appear, Moses and Elijah. And they're talking about his departure. In Greek, it's the word exodus, uh, which he's about to accomplish at Jerusalem. Um, what's significant here is uh, there's, this, there's a cloud, the, the glory, um, and then uh, a cloud came and overshadowed them and they were afraid as they entered the cloud and a voice came out of the cloud saying, this is my son, my chosen one, listen to him. That's what Moses says we're supposed to do to the prophet like Moses. This is alluding back to Deuteronomy 18. Uh, this event 
has a bunch of things that are meant to remind us of Sinai, right? First of all, they're on a mountain. What does that remind us of? Mount Sinai. Um, you can't always say anytime you see a mountain in scripture, it's an allusion to Mount Sinai, but almost, <laughs> almost any time. If it's a good mountain, then, it, you know, there's there, there could be some, a, a subtle allusion back to Mount Sinai. There's this overshadowing cloud, right? That That is there, just like there was on Mount Sinai. There's a heavenly voice that speaks forth, just like on Mount Sinai. And... What do both Moses and Elijah have in common? They both had encounters with God at Mount Sinai. They also represent the Torah and the prophets. Um, meaning, so they represent the scriptures, right? Uh, but this, this, the concluding scene is quoting Deuteronomy 18. The, the point is Yeshua is the prophet like Moses, right? And this this fact gets repeatedly emphasized throughout uh, throughout the book of Acts. We're going to see this come up. So here, uh, uh, Peter is quoting Deuteronomy 18 and applying it to Yeshua. Yeshua is that prophet like Moses, and the implications are that we must listen to him. It is necessary to listen to him. And then Peter ends with this um this message, uh, you are the sons of the prophets and of the covenant God made with your fathers, saying to Abraham, in your offspring shall all the families of the earth be blessed. Uh, who is that offspring? I think Luke intends us to understand this to be talking about Yeshua, just like, I mean, Paul makes that explicit in his letters, right? This, in your seed, um, entospermati in Greek, in, in your seed, that's, that's talking about Yeshua. In Yeshua shall all the families of the earth be blessed. And all the families of the earth, Luke points out, includes the Jewish people. And in fact, prioritizes the Jewish people as Luke sees it. God, having raised up his servant, sent him to you first to bless you by turning every one of you from your wickedness. So in other words, God's, God's plan is to bless all the nations through Yeshua, but he sent him to you first to bless you first. So Israel gets blessed first, and that blessing spreads out to all the nations. This is how Luke is interpreting the Abrahamic promise. And it, it, uh, we're going to see this pattern over and over again in, in Acts, even when the message does begin to go out to Gentiles, it's still to the Jew first, right? Paul says to the Jew first and also to the Gentile or to the Greek. So, um, this is the pattern. The Abrahamic blessing blesses Israel first and then goes out to the other nations. I think at this stage in the story, Peter's not aware of the full implications of his own words. I, I, I don't think he, Peter understands the full force of his words at this point. Because as we're going to see in chapter 10, it has not yet dawned on the followers of Yeshua that Gentiles will have uh, a place in that restoration of Israel that is taking place. Uh, this will become more significant later, but but this this is pointing forward to that, right? Um, what Peter's saying here is hinting at the coming uh, the coming blessing on the Gentiles as well. 
there's also, again, a sense of judgment coming, right? Um, he's, he's wanting the people to repent so their sins may be blotted out and uh, times of refreshing. It, it gives the impression that if they don't repent, something not good will happen. So, so again, we have this repentance, this call to repentance as a means of avoiding judgment. All right, uh, let's just look really briefly at Peter's third sermon in chapter four. Uh, I don't think we'll read the whole thing, but it starts in verse eight. I suppose it's only a couple verses. I'll just I'll just read through this quick. Then Peter, filled with the Holy Spirit, said to them, "Rulers and people, uh, rulers of the people and elders." So this is after they've been incarcerated by the uh, the temple authorities, and they're giving a defense before the council. Um, so Peter says, "If we're being examined today concerning a good deed done to a crippled man, by what means?" This man has been healed. Let it be known to all of you and to all the people of Israel that by the name of Yeshua, Messiah of Nazareth, whom you crucified, whom God raised from the dead, by him this man is standing before you well. Mm. This Yeshua is the stone that was rejected by you, the builders, which has become the cornerstone. And there is salvation in no one else, for there is no other name under heaven given among men by which we must be saved. So here's a quick structure of the sermon. Uh, again, Peter uses the, this explaining this healing uh, as a springboard for his mini sermon here. Um, so the healing that happened took place through Yeshua, whom you crucified. Uh, it's interesting that in each of these sermons, we've seen this this sense that the culpability for Yeshua's death is is placed on the people that he is addressing, right? And in the first sermon, that seems kind of unfair. Like these are Jews from all over the diaspora, right? How, how can they be blamed for crucifying Yeshua? Were they even there when Yeshua was crucified, right? Uh, with, with the next sermon, when it's in the temple precincts, uh, it seems it, it's possible that this is a little more legit, uh, like that the, the crowd he's addressing would have been... Um, closer to the ones who were there when Yeshua was crucified. Here, for sure, he's talking to the council that condemned Yeshua to death, right? Mm -hmm. And so it seems like this, this sense of culpability increases with the, um, the directness of who he, whom Peter is addressing, right? He's, he's addressing those who were directly responsible in this case. Uh, but perhaps there's a sense that we should all feel, I mean, maybe what Peter's point is, is that in a sense, we're all responsible for Yeshua's death, right? Um, this is something that it's not just the Jews that did it, right? And, and Peter explains that it happened at the hands of lawless men and, and the Gentiles and, and, and things like that. But, um, we have to be careful not to interpret this as like an anti-Jew sort of thing. Oh, you Jews are the ones who killed Yeshua. Um, that's not what Peter's point is. 
Okay, so healing through Yeshua. Yeshua is the stone that the builders rejected. There, of course, he's alluding to Psalm 118.22, and salvation is through no one else. So Peter gives this mini midrash on Psalm 122. Uh, if we go back to Psalm 122, or sorry, Psalm 118, verse 22. The stone that the builders rejected has become the capstone. This is the Lord's doing. It is marvelous in our eyes. This is the day the Lord has made. Let us rejoice and be glad in it. So the, the image here is of, you know, masons building a structure, perhaps an arch or something like that. And they're looking for stones that will fit together. And they pick up this one stone and they're like, no, nah, this isn't going to work. And they toss it. And then when they get close to completing the structure, you know, they leave, they need that one last stone, the keystone to hold it all together. And suddenly they realize, hey, that stone we threw out at the beginning would fit perfect here. And it ends up becoming the most honored stone of the whole, uh, the whole structure, right? Uh, that's, that's the image that's, that, that this is using. It's, it's drawing off of, uh, Jewish interpreters have often pointed out the word for stone, even, sounds very similar to the word for sun, ben. So if you just cut off the first letter, you get the word sun. The sun that the builders rejected has become the cornerstone or the, the head of the corner. Jewish interpreters have seen this as a reference to David, right? Uh, remember with when Samuel went to was was sent Samuel was sent to the house of Jesse to anoint one of Jesse's sons and all his sons were passed before him and the Lord said no it's not none of these and of course it was supposed to be David but everyone had overlooked little David you know he was the youngest he was still out with the sheep and so he was the one that the builders had rejected but he ended up becoming the king this is similar to how the apostles understood that verse, right? This is the, the one who was rejected is Yeshua. And the builders, in this case, Peter flat out identifies the builders as the religious leaders. There's the religious leaders who rejected Yeshua. And, and so this is, a, this is a prophecy of Yeshua's rejection, right? Let's end with this verse. There's salvation in no one else for there is no other name under heaven among men by which we must be saved. That is true on a personal level. It's also true on a national level, right? That Yeshua is the only means of personal salvation, but he's also the only means of national salvation. Uh, Messiah is the agent of redemption. That's, that's the role of Messiah. So if Yeshua is truly the Messiah, then by definition, there can be no salvation, no restoration, no final redemption without him or apart from him. It is all through him. There is no other name under heaven. Thanks for listening to this audio teaching. The goal of Segula is to cast a vision for a healthy and mature Messianic Torah movement. This series of teachings on Luke Acts is made possible through the help of our ministry partners and supporters. For more information about this ministry, please visit www.segula.net. May the Father richly bless you as you seek Him, and together may we all become a glorious people in Messiah.